I have a little confession to make. Last night I talked to you about our little school and I said I thought the tuition was $800. I lied. <laughs> Not like Jimmy Swaggered crying all over the place, I sinned, but I thought I was telling the truth, but it isn't so. It's actually $4,300 for six months. It's really a bargain, but it doesn't sound as good as yesterday. <laughs> so, I apologize. <clears throat> I had to call my vice president to find out what the price really was because I was questioning my own judgment. I ought to stay home a little more. <laughs> All right. I would know what's going on. In any case, we're here together. It's our last time together. And I'm going to miss doing this. But I couldn't keep it up forever anyway. And so I have another appointment. We must go on. You have appointments. But ah, friends, listen. Take what you've learned this week. The Lord has chosen this week to send just the right people to speak to us, to speak to you. Take it home. Take it home. And like somebody said sometime during the week, he's going to go home and he's going to buy the CDs or he's going to obtain them or he's going to go on the internet, whatever, and he's going to listen to them again. There has been some really deep, deep, profound material shared with you this week and you can't lose sight of it. It's wonderful. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Now notice I didn't say Luke chapter 15. I said Luke chapter 18. We're looking at the elder brother's Christian experience. This is what we're doing. He thought everything was all right with him. He thought everything was, was a mess with his brother. His brother comes home and his brother receives the merits of the fatted calf, which represents Jesus, you understand. His brother comes home and receives the robe and the ring and the shoes and the feast everything that he's always wanted while he, <clears throat> while he himself received none of it and it of course precipitated him into a major spiritual crisis. And so this evening I just want to look at that kind of person, that kind of religion. That's why I had you turn to Luke chapter 18. We're going to look at a little parable that Jesus spoke starting with verse 9. So this is Luke 18. We're starting with verse 9. And this is addressing the elder brother in the other parable, Luke chapter 15. It's addressing more than the elder brother. He's going to be addressed here as a Pharisee. And if there are any of us who have Pharisaical tendencies, and by the way, that's every one of us. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you'll recognize yourself here, but it's not hard. It's not hard. Let's just look at it. Verse 9. And he, Jesus spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now, in what did they trust? No. They trusted in themselves. Did they need God? Yeah. Well, they did, but they didn't know it because they trusted in themselves. And what in themselves did they trust for? For righteousness. They were good. They were good, and they were good apart from God. Now, I can't help but me mention, now some of you were not here this morning at the devotional hour. Your conference president preached the sermon. I mean, he hit it right out of the park. It was amazing on righteousness by faith. And the whole thing boiled down to sin. Sin is living a life 
apart from God. Sin is just simply living your life without any dependence on God. And that's what sin is. And when you live apart from God, then you sin plural. All the sin plural in your life is due to the fact that you're living your own life. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. You just can't do it apart from God. And that's, that's the whole crux of the whole thing. And if you and I could come to the place where we are dependent on God every moment, every day, for every decision we have to make, do you think he, if we acknowledged him in all our ways, do you think he would direct our path? Oh, yes, he would. He would direct our path. How many mistakes do you suppose we would make? I asked that question earlier this week, but it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, and that's simply what faith is. Yeah, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Amazing. Well, here we have an individual who trusts in himself. He doesn't say here he trusts in God. He trusts in himself. Therefore, he can live his life confident that he is righteous because trusting in himself, he looks at his works, he looks at his behavior, he looks at all that he's accomplished. We're going to see that more and more as we look at him. But then it says here that when an individual trusts in himself that he is good, he ends up being, doing what? Despising others. He becomes despicable. <laughs> it reminds me of the cartoon character. I don't even know which cartoon character, but there was one that used to spit out this word, despicable. <laughs> yeah. Sylvester. Sylvester. You've been watching that stuff? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So people who trust in themselves that they are good, end up despising others. That's what it says. Now, we have a wonderful illustration of it. If you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. We're going to look at verse 4. This is the story of Abraham and Sarah. 25 years earlier, or almost 25 years earlier, God promised to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son. 25 years later, they don't have a son. And now it is past time for Sarah to have children. She can no longer have children. And so now she's scratching her head. How come God didn't answer this promise? We've got to help him in this matter. And she comes up with the great idea that, that someone else can have her, a son on her behalf. You understand. But I have a question for you, mostly for you ladies. I suppose you can think also if you're a man, but, but the ladies will probably re re relate to it a little bit better. If you had been Sarah that day, and I suppose that Abraham was fairly wealthy, so my guess is that Sarah had several maids, several maidens attending to her needs because they were wealthy. And so here Sarah has come up with a plan that that Abraham ought to have a child by someone else, one of her maidens. Now, ladies, if you had several maidens, if you had several servants, late girls, which one would you choose? No, you can't say that. <laughs> because Sarah chose one, you see. And so, still and all, she had it in her head to say, I am going to choose one, and she, I don't think she went, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. She probably had to think in her mind, this is going to be my son, so the girl I choose needs to be good looking. 
The girl I choose needs to have a nice spirit. The girl I choose cannot be rebellious. The girl I choose must be subservient to me, easy to handle, and all of the rest. Don't you think so? It seems to me that if I was Sarah, that's what I would want. You'd have to think ahead, and you'd have to choose one that would be easy to deal with, one that you love already, one that has been obedient to you, one that has been submissive to you. That, I think, is what she would do, right? So she cho chose an Egyptian girl called Hagar. And, of course, if we're, we go to verse 4 now, and we're in Genesis chapter 16, Verse 4, I want you to notice something strange, I think strange. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was what? Despised in her eyes. Do you think her mistress was despised before then? No, no. So why all of a sudden is Hagar despising Sarah? Because all of a sudden, Hagar is superior to Sarah in one thing. In everything else, probably Sarah is superior to Hagar. Hagar is a slave girl. She's just a servant girl. She's young probably and all the rest. And Sarah is her mistress you know, she's in charge, she's got money, she's got influence, she's got power, she's got everything else. But in one thing, Hagar is superior to her mistress, and now she can look down her long nose at her mistress and say, Hey, you can't do this. It was important in those days that women had children. You know that. That was, that was very important. Sarah never had a child. Hagar had a child for Abraham, and she despised her mistress. Do you ever despise anyone? Who do you despise if you despise anyone? And I hope you don't, actually. Yeah, usually we despise people upon whom we look down on. The intelligent despise the unintelligent. The strong despise the weak. And friends, I see it, I see it. I sit on a probably ten boards, and I sit on several boards that have millionaires, very strong people. Millionaires don't become millionaires by being weak, you understand, you know? And I, I have nothing against them. They're in the same boat we're in, you know, they, they are sinners like we are, but they have strength, human strength, human choleric characters. You see, and I can see that they don't know how to relate to weak people because they themselves are not weak and they don't understand weakness. They don't. The beautiful despise the ugly, the educated despise the ignorant, the religious despise the irreligious, and the saved despise the lost. Is that right? No. Because if the saved despise the lost, then it would show that they are not saved at all. <laughs> Yeah, the saved are different, aren't they? I would like to take a little side trip with you. We've been looking at righteousness by faith all week. But righteousness by faith is supposed to produce fruit. And I would like you, just, just, we're just going to look at a few verses, to just to look at what it is that it means to be a Christian, to be saved, to have Jesus Christ in our hearts, to have the Holy Spirit in control of who we are as Christians. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This is the verse that I shared with you last night that I said I was borrowing for, from tonight. We'll look at it one more time. Philippians chapter 2. We're looking at verse 3. 
Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But watch now. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. And my question last night was, what would the world be like if everyone in the world esteemed everyone else greater than themselves? What would the world be like? Why, friends, it would be like heaven, because that's how heaven is going to be. Do you know? Everyone is going to look up to everyone else. No one is going to look down their long noses at anyone. You'll be walking down the streets of gold one day, you've been in heaven I don't know how long, and all of a sudden you spot a mile or two, or I don't know how far, because I don't know how far you can see in heaven, but here comes Moses on the street of gold, and you're walking his way, and he's walking your way, and all of a sudden you, you begin to, to be excited because this is Moses after all, and you haven't met him yet. Heaven's a big place. And there's a lot of people there. And you haven't met Moses. You know it's Moses. And you're about to meet Moses. And you're looking up to him. But the closer you get to Moses, you notice that he has the same excitement. And he knows who you are. And he looks up to you. And you think to yourself, that, that doesn't make any sense. I'm nobody. But he's Moses, the greatest human leader this world has ever seen. How is it that he's looking up to me? But when he comes to you, he says, well, you don't understand. You know, I lived when I lived. It was one thing to live those many thousand years ago, but you lived through the last days, and I don't know if I could have lived through the last days. You have my full respect. Won't that be wonderful? Yeah, that's how it's going to be in heaven. Well... Is that how it is in this world below? Oh, no. Oh, no. But praise the Lord, that's the way it is in the church, isn't it? <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, I suppose that's not so. It should be so. But I have noticed that that's the way it is at Pugwash camp meeting. And it's been a tremendous blessing to me this week. It really, really has been a blessing to me. I like... Uh, just look at the next verse. We're looking at verse 4 now. And we're looking at what it means to be a Christian today. And that's what it means. And by the way, like I said last night, the Lord didn't mean that everyone is greater than we are. The Lord means that that's how we treat everyone. Oh, there's all kinds of people in the world. And we're not all the same. And you can find someone that's greater than you are, stronger than you are, more beautiful than you are, more intelligent than you are, more educated than you are. And you can find the opposite also. But the Lord says, no, treat everyone as if they are superior to yourself. And what an impact that has on the hearts of people. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Verse 4, we continue in the same line or the same vein. Look not every man on his own things. Take care of your things, but be as concerned also with the things of others. Now, I assume that's the way you operate, but I, um, I am the president of an institution, Eden Valley, and you know, it's amazing to me, but on institutions, uh, people happen to feel like nobody owns anything, and it doesn't seem to matter as much, because I don't own it, and nobody owns it. And so when we take a vehicle at the institution, somebody will think, well, let's just drive away. Well, wait a minute, why don't you check the oil? Well, somebody else will check the oil. They always, somebody will check the oil. I don't have to check the oil. Well, what if everyone said the same thing? Yeah. And it's amazing that, humanly speaking, we have the, 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 the sense that we want to really take care of our stuff. Now, some people don't take care of anything, not even their stuff. <laughs> but 
But Christians take care of stuff, I would, I would assume. Ah, but ought we not to take care of everything? Especially if it doesn't belong to us? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Turn with me also to 1 Corinthians chap- chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> Just practical verses from the Word of God on how we ought to live as Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're looking at verse 24. By the way, this adds nothing to your salvation. This is the fruit of salvation. And we look for the fruit to show, to know, whether indeed you have received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Verse 24, Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Is that how you operate? Making sure that... uh, that you make everyone around you wealthier for being around you. Yeah. But in this world, it doesn't work that way, does it? Oh, no. In this world, every man for himself, and it's dog-eat-dog, and I want to be wealthy, and if I can, I will use you to make myself wealthy. We see the same thing in verse 33 from the Apostle Paul. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. If everyone had this attitude, if everyone was working to, to enrich everyone around us, what a rich world it would be. As a matter of fact, my Bible says, give and it shall be given unto you. Is that a true principle? Do you know that if we actually believed this, this promise, that we would give a lot more than we give? It's amazing. We are Christians. We believe the Word of God. We believe every promise in the Word, right? And the Lord says, Give and it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men pour into your bosom. And we say, Lord, really? Is it true? And so, how much do we give? How much would we give if we actually believed it? Because it's true. And yet, there's something in our hearts that Boy, it's not that easy always to give, is it? No, because we actually don't believe it like we should. It's amazing how God deals with us. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And we're looking at verse 10. Be kindly affectioned one towards another with brotherly love, in, our, in honor, preferring one another. Do you know what the word prefer means? I mean, some people prefer, some people prefer Chevys and some people prefer Fords. Some people prefer apples over bananas or, or over oranges. That's what it means to prefer something. Well, here the Bible verse is saying, when an honor is being poured out or given out, prefer that somebody else get the honor rather than yourself. That's what it's saying. One time, we were at Woodland Park Foundation and we were having a board meeting. We were part of the board meeting. My brother-in-law were asked to step out because they had chosen a president, but now they wanted to, cho- to choose a vice president and two names had been nominated, myself and my brother-in-law. So we stepped out and we were out a long, long time. It appeared like inside the board meeting they couldn't make up their minds which one should be vice president. You understand? So after a long time, somebody stepped out and came to me and said, you know, we're having a hard time. We don't know who to choose. And so we've come out to ask you if you have any idea. And I said, well, that's easy. 
choose my brother-in-law. He's far more intelligent. He's far more capable. He should be the vice president. And I suppose they went to talk to him also. And I don't know what he said. Well, anyway, they went back in and deliberated for some time longer. Who do you suppose they chose to be vice president? No, they chose my (laughs) brother-in-law. I knew you would say that. (laughs) Yeah, and that's how it should have been. And And that was fine with me. But sometime, not so far later, they had to choose a new president and they chose me to be president. Now, they should have chosen my brother-in-law, but he'd been vice president just long enough to know he didn't want to be president. And so it, it fell upon me. When there is an honor being doled out, see that it goes to someone else to the best of your ability. Unless, of course, and then God has a lot to do with this stuff. He's the one that decides who's going to be where. Romans 15 Romans chapter 15, let's look from verse 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. We don't live to advantage ourselves, do we? Should we live to advantage ourselves? Have you ever sold a car? You know you never sell a car unless the car is not as good as it used to be. If your car remained as good as it was when it was new, you'd probably stay with the car forever because that's why you bought the car. You liked it, it was good, you drive it and you drive it, but it always deteriorates. Everything in the world deteriorates. So you have to come to the point in time, sometimes, where you've got to sell the car to buy another one. Now, usually there's something wrong with the car if you're going to sell it. Do you tell the people all that's wrong with the car you're about to sell? I mean, who are you protecting, them or you? If you were a Christian, who would you protect, them or yourself? How easy it is to, to think in terms of what's going to advantage me. But that isn't Christianity, by the way. Oh no, when we're filled with the Spirit of God, our greatest concern is always for the person next to us. See to it. I was telling not very long ago, and I don't know how well that this fits, but I was telling someone not very long ago that when I cut an avocado in half, I always give my wife the bigger half. Now somebody said that's not possible because if it was in half, there wouldn't be a bigger half. (laughs) And I said, oh, brother. (laughs) So when I cut an avocado in two, I give the bigger half to, to my wife. Always. That's my rule. If there's a big apple and a small apple, I will take the small one. If there's a big piece of pie and a small piece of pie, I will always take the small one. If there's a hand of banana, I will look at the bananas to see which is the worst one that's the banana that I will take. I have made it a rule for myself. Do you know why? You know, when I cut an avocado in half, how much difference do you think there is between the two halves? Well, there isn't... I know, they're not halves. There isn't hardly any difference between the two halves. It's not even worth talking about or thinking about. But listen, there is a huge difference. There is a huge difference. And it isn't in the mind of the receiver. It's in the mind of the giver. I can testify to it. When I cut an avocado in half, I want the bigger half. I've been a Christian for 40 years. I still want the bigger half. (laughs) Even though it doesn't make any sense. It's hardly any difference. Because I am hotwired that way. I am a selfish sinner 
from the beginning and I always want to advantage myself. And it's, 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 a, it's a prayer in my soul all the time. Lord, destroy selfishness, selfishness in me. Help me to cooperate with you in destroying selfishness in me. Help me to do the thing that is right. Help me to sacrifice myself. I think I shared with you earlier this week what my, my, my personal... What's the word? My personal... Mission statement. Thank you, John. See, he knows me. <laughs> yeah. My personal mission statement is to live at all expense to myself for the honor and glory of God and for the good and happiness of others. Oh, that I could live up to that mission statement. What a blessing it would be. So here we are. Them that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let, a, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification, for even Christ pleased not himself. Jesus didn't come to be served. Jesus didn't come to be advantaged. Jesus didn't come to make money. He didn't come to own property. He didn't come to find a title or to be called Mr. President. He didn't, call, he didn't come here for any of it. He came to lift you up and to lift me up at all expense to himself. And you know where it led him? Yes. Do you know where it would lead us? Same place. Same place. We would find a cross in all of this. Yeah. What a wonderful, what a wonderful, what a wonderful stuff I've heard here this week. <laughs> really. And do you know this, this principle is tested best in, in or between a married couple? It is. Everyone here that is married... One of you is stronger than the other. The stronger must bear the burden of the weaker. But we're not talking only about physical strength, are we? No. One of you is intellectually stronger than the other, and it doesn't mean the man will be. Very often the woman is. That's what happened to me. <laughs> yeah. One of you will be stronger socially. One of you will be stronger emotionally. One of you will be stronger sexually. One of you will be stronger... And the stronger one is to bear the infirmities of the weaker one. That means carry the load. Yeah. This is what Christianity is all about. Matthew 11. Matthew 11. We're looking at verse 11 in Matthew 11. I think somebody, I think uh, Pastor Mather used this verse this week. Um, Matthew 11, 11. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now who is saying this? Does Jesus know what he's talking about? And who is the greatest man ever born in this world? John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said, right? That's what he said. Well, what did John the Baptist ever do? <laughs> he never wrote a book. Not even in the Bible has he got a book that he wrote. Did he work any miracles? I don't know that he worked any miracles. Perhaps he did. I mean, he was a prophet of the Lord. Yeah. Didn't conquer the Romans. He was... What did he do? Well, he spoke the word of God. But it wasn't what he did that Jesus was relating to. It's who he was. And this is what God is looking for in the people. How, how often we think that an individual is a great Christian because he's built an institution or because he's gone to Africa and he's been a missionary and he's escaped 
hippos and elephants and whatever, you know. But that doesn't mean you're a great Christian. No, the Lord is looking at the heart. Yeah. So what is it that made John the Baptist greater than any man born of a woman? It's right there in the verse. However, it's very hard to understand unless you really have your spiritual cap on. Look what it says following what we've just read. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What is this saying about John the Baptist? John the Baptist was least in his own estimation than everyone else around him. In other words, John the Baptist esteemed everyone greater than himself. And in case you think I'm stretching this verse, let me read it to you from the spirit of prophecy. This is Last Day Events, page 296, paragraph 3. The greatest there, that's in heaven now, the greatest there is least in self-esteem. And the least is the greatest in gratitude and wealth of love. Do you see it? When we get to heaven, we will esteem everyone else greater than ourselves. Yeah. Because the work of justification, the work of salvation, is to lay the glory of man in the dust. And before we are done, before we get to the kingdom, your glory will be laid in the dust. So that God can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So that we can come to the place where we distrust our own powers. So we can come to the place where we put all our faith and all our confidence in God because we've lost all confidence in ourselves. And when we do that, we esteem everyone else greater than ourselves. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. It is wonderful, I think. Let's go back to our parable, Luke chapter 18. We started with a parable. We only read one verse. We're in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they ended up despising everybody else because they were very, how they esteemed themselves greater than they should have esteemed themselves. Verse 10, two men, this is the parable now, two men went up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a publican. We know that a Pharisee was a pastor of the day, well-respected individual, gone to seminary, gone to church school, gone to rabbinical schools, gone to the schools of the prophets. They knew their Bibles, at least they thought they knew their Bibles. Everyone looked up to them. They were the leaders in the community. That's who the Pharisees were. But the publican was a tax collector. And he usually, he was an Israelite collecting taxes from the Israelites to give to the Romans. And they were despised because much of the time they were also kind of thieves. They padded their pockets far more than they should have. Okay, so here we have the comparison of two. One very well-respected pastor and a thief publican, <laughs> if I can say it that way. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Now, here's my question. Why did he pray with himself? Because God wouldn't hear that kind of prayer. That's right, God wouldn't hear that kind of prayer. And notice what he called himself. Let's read it again. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee. Who is he calling God? Yeah, let me, let me show you from the Spirit of Prophecy. This is Signs of the Times, February 19, 1885. He began his self-worship, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. 
And friends, this is what it means to be self-righteous. When you are self-righteous, you have made yourself God. You are your own idol. You are your own God because you are not dependent on the God of heaven. You are dependent on yourself. Therefore, you are your own Savior. That's what a self-righteous Pharisee was all about. Really, they didn't recognize it, of course. They never would have said it that way. And then the funny thing is that he says, uh, I am so thankful that I am not as other men are. Well, where in the world will you find a man that is not as other men are? There's no such thing. Every man is as other men are. But he had come to the place in his self-estimation that he was above all men. Not realizing that if the Spirit of God was withdrawn altogether from that individual, that he was capable of sinning any sin that any man could sin, the worst man in the world, he would end up being. Not realizing that he was dependent on God for who he had become, and if he, there was anything good in him, it had come from God, but he thought it was coming from himself. And so he said, I, and he thought this was great, I fast twice in the week, I tithe of all that I possess, I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, and I'm not like that publican over there for sure. Yeah, yeah. He was worse than that guy over there, wasn't he? Yes, he was, yeah. Well, the Pharisee thought himself saved, and he thought for sure that the publican was lost because he was comparing his external behavior to the publican's external behavior and it didn't, it didn't, well, you would do the same thing, wouldn't you? If you looked at the publican and who he had been and what he had done and what he represented and all the rest and if you look at the Pharisee which was a pastor and he fasted twice in a week and he gave tithe of all that he possessed and he wasn't unjust and he wasn't an adulterer, he had an exemplary life it appeared. Yeah. But what's interesting is that Jesus didn't think so. If you look at verse 13, and the publican, standing afar off, would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. you know the only difference between the lost and the saved is that the saved feel their need of help from God and the lost can go through life on their own steam at their own expense on their own dime and everything is going okay they think that's the only difference you see we're not better than other people and sometimes I think it pays I'm trying to bring back something Dr. Neal said. He sins most who is most right. Now I've paraphrased it, but it was on the screen here. He sins most who is most right. <laughs> that was on the screen. Yeah, it's true. If you come to the place where you can see yourself because you have come close to Jesus, the closer we come to Jesus, the more faulty we will appear in our own eyes because the closer we come to Jesus, the more the contrast is between His perfection and my great lack. And I begin to see more and more and more my undone condition and I feel bad and everybody else begins to look better than me. 
That's salvation. Isn't that weird? <laughs> but it's laying the glory of man in the dust so that he can do for us. And that, it's at this point that God can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It's a wonderful plan, except that we haven't always understood it. We haven't always known. We go back now to verse 14, and Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the publican, the, the one whose external behavior has been so messed up, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Who was saved in, in this? Yeah. So if you're looking around in the crowd today and you see someone who's not doing very well, he may well be closer to the kingdom than you are. It's possible. Yeah. And then Jesus gives us a law in the rest of verse 14 there. I want you to know that God puts himself in full charge of executing this next promise. Verse 14, the second half. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased. And he that humbles himself shall be exalted. Mm -hmm. Dangerous, isn't it? Yeah, I've had this experience all my life. It just seems to me, before I was a Christian, I, when I was a little boy, it seemed to me that if something was really hard to do and I sweated over the idea of trying to tackle this thing, it always turned out to be easier than I thought it was going to be. And any time I came to the place where I thought something was going to be so easy, I was going to sail through this thing, then there's a God in heaven who seems to be in there organizing it so that I run into a wall and it is ten times more difficult than I expected. It's always been that way. And I have to attribute it to the fact that there is a God in heaven who, who follows through with this promise. Any man, it doesn't matter. This is how God operates. If you exalt yourself, he says, I'll knock you down. If you humble yourself, he will lift you up. What a blessing. What a blessing. Well, anyway, in the parable of the prodigal son, both the prodigal and the elder brother were lost. One was lost in the world, one was lost in the church. But because he was in the church, because he outwardly did better than his brother, he felt sure that his religion, his good behavior, had earned him God's favor. He felt sure that his brother's sinfulness would keep him out of heaven. And then the brother comes home, and the whole thing turns around. The younger brother gets the robe and the ring and the shoes and the feast, the, he gets the merits of the fatted calf applied to him and the older brother gets nothing and he is angry. This is what we read the other day. Do you know that it is at this point that Cain killed Abel? Yes. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to look at the story of Cain and Abel just, just a little bit. Genesis chapter 4, we'll look, we're going to start with verse 3. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. He was a farmer, and in those days things grew beautifully. I can't imagine, I would have liked to have seen his offering. And he had a huge basket, and it was full of fruit and vegetables, and he had waxed everything, and he had shined and polished everything, and he grabbed this, this huge basket, and he climbed up the hill, he went to the gate of the Garden of Eden, which was still guarded by an angel there. There was the altar, and he brought this big offering to the Lord, put it on the altar, and he had made a sacrifice, and God ought to pay 
attention to it. And when they were, excuse me, verse uh, 4, and the Lord, now, verse 4, and Abel, he also brought the firstlings of the flock and the fat thereof. Abel was a shepherd, and he too was making a sacrifice. He went into his flock, he took the best little lamb that he had, and he brought that to the altar and he offered it to the Lord. But notice what it says, the Lord had respect to Abel and his offering, but to Cain and his offering he had no respect. Now why not? They both made a sacrifice, they both came to the altar, they both paid something, an offering to the Lord. Do you know that Ellen White said that if Cain had brought an offering, this, his offering as a thank offering, it would have been acceptable to God. But he didn't bring it as a thank offering. He brought it as an atonement. He was going to atone for his sin by a sacrifice that he himself had made. Now all of a sudden, his brother comes, they both make a sacrifice, and Abel's sacrifice is respected of God, it's received by God. Do you know why? Because Abel brought a sacrifice that projected forward what God was going to do. What Abel was doing was showing that he himself was not making a sacrifice, but it was a sacrifice that God himself was going to make. And God had respect unto this, this offering. And so we see Cain was wroth, was angry, and his countenance fell. Verse, um, verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. You know, this is what was in the elder brother's heart. You know that, don't you? If you go with me to 1 John, 1 John, we're almost done. 1 John chapter 3. And we're looking at verses 14 and 15. By the way, verse 14 is an amazing verse. Do you want to know if you are saved? Here it is. <laughs> 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life. You can know. You can know right now. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. Whoso hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Cain murdered his brother because he followed through with his hatred. The elder brother in the parable was just a parable, didn't follow through to that end. But this hatred that he had for his brother was just as much murder as what Cain had done in the other place. So if we go to the parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, let's go back. We're going to finish. Well, I got a couple of more verses to read. Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. We look at verse 28. It says, And he was angry and would not go into the feast. Therefore his father came out and entreated him. And so here comes the father. The elder brother is angry. And the father has enough heart, enough love for the ang angry older brother that he comes out to entreat him. Do you know that God came out to entreat Cain twice to talk to him about this? Do you know that when Adam sinned, that God came down to entreat Adam? Do you know that God 
comes to you when you have discouraged, when you have sinned, when you have messed up, and he comes to entreat you also. His love is so grand, his love is so great. Yeah, but in verse 29 we see that the elder brother had, an, had a reason, had an excuse for acting the way he was acting. He answering said to his father, Look, these many years do I serve thee, I never, neither transgressed I at any time your commandments, yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. I keep all the commandments. And you bless that kid who went out and blew all this money on sin. He comes home and you bless him. I keep the commandments all my life. I don't go out and sin. I do everything that's right externally, of course. And no blessing for me. No robe, no ring, no shoes, no feast. It's not fair. It's not fair. Can you see it? What he's thinking here? Go to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. And we're looking at verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And the elder brother could say, now wait a minute, wait a minute. I have done the will of my Father all my life. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. Hmm. Verse 22 and 23. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name cast out devils and in your name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto you, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. How do we know that something is wrong with these people's experience? They have done all these wonderful things and yet we know something is wrong with these people's experience. How do we know? Can you tell? Because they're pointing to all their good works as a reason why they should be acceptable to God. Yeah. And God didn't know them. They did it all in their strength, in their own strength. They did it all separate from God. It wasn't God working through them. It was their own good works. And God says, well, I never knew you. You were never connected with me. You were never dependent on me. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That's what he was saying to them. Yeah. This is what the elder brother in the parable was pointing to. I never transgressed your commandments. I never left the church. I never went out there with the younger brother. I never was in bars. I never was dancing and fornicating with harlots. I never did this. I never did that. I am pure. And he was all wrong. Yeah. This is what Cain pointed to. I carried that thing up the hill. <laughs> I put that whole basket. I, you know, I sacrificed that thing. This is what the Pharisee was pointing to also. I tithe of all that I possess. I fast twice in the week. I don't commit adultery. I am not dishonest. On and on and on. While Abel and the prodigal son and the publican could only point to a slain lamb, a fatted calf, and a call for mercy with downcast eyes. Do you know what happened to the elder brother in the parable? Well, it doesn't say. But I can show you what might happen to him. Genesis chapter 4, let's go back to Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. 
Look at verse 15 in Genesis chapter 4. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whosoever slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. Now what is this mark? Can I read it to you from the Spirit of Prophecy? This is uh, first Bible commentary, 1087. Any man, watch now, any man, be he minister or layman, who seeks to compel and control the reason of another man, becomes an agent of Satan to do his work, and in the sight of the heavenly universe he bears the mark of Cain. What mark is it, really? It's the mark of the beast. If you want to study the mark of the beast, start in Genesis chapter 4. And it all has to do with righteousness by faith. It all has to do with putting your dependence on yourself rather than your dependence on God. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Can you see it? May God help us. What do you say? I'm going to invite you, now don't go away as soon as we're done. I'm going to invite you to pray, but Pastor Victor's got something to say to all of us. Let's stand. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful for all that we've heard this week. We're so grateful to know that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that He has paid the price, that He's given us the gift, and that we may rest assured in His salvation, and that You love us. Oh, what a wonderful thing to know that God is on our side, and He is on our side. Help us by Thy grace to believe every promise and to just bask in Your love. Bless these people here in Pugwash. Bless these people here um, in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island. Bless, bless this conference. Bless the leaders. Bless every person. May we all be Christians in the fullest sense of the word. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.